A lot of my research concentrates on the Chinese military, the Chinese People's Liberation Army, and their approach to future warfare. The real pivotal moment when we look at the development of Chinese cyber forces was the establishment of the PLA Strategic Support Force in December 2015. Excluding Huawei and the, on the basis of security concerns does not mean you have secure 5G. It's just the start of the conversation. Uh, hello and welcome to Password123, a cyber podcast produced by UNSW Canberra. In this podcast, we explore a range of topics from the world of cyber and speak to some of the most influential figures in the InfoSec community. My name is Tom Sear and I'm an industry fellow at UNSW Canberra Cyber at the Australian Defence Force Academy. Uh, welcome um, to Australia once again. You're someone that does come to these shores uh, fairly often. Um, so maybe you could start off just by telling us a little bit about you and your work and your general OVRA um, and what your areas of interest are, please. Thank you. I'm very glad to be back in Canberra. My name is also Kenya and I'm a non-resident fellow with the International Cyber Policy Centre at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ICPIC at ASPE, and I'm here for their conference on war in 2025 and a lot of my research as an analyst and as an academic concentrates on the Chinese military, the Chinese People's Liberation Army, and their approach to future warfare and emerging technologies, looking across cyber, space, electronic warfare, even psychological operations, as well as advances in unmanned systems, artificial intelligence, quantum technology, fifth generation telecommunications and beyond. So in the totality, that's enough to keep me fairly busy uh, in in my research. And I tried to speak to some of the trends that are emerging at a time when many of these technologies are also becoming new frontiers for US-China strategic competition today. Great. Well, I guess based on that very broad um, uh, set of interests, I mean, what do you think the future of war might be? I mean, maybe it won't even be war. What do you think about that particular problem? So I think it's clear that we are seeing a deepening and intensification of a rivalry between the People's Republic of China and the United States that I think is really going to shape the course of the century. For better and worse, I think this is the new normal in a sense, and I hope that there are ways this competition can be productive and constructive and... On, for instance, in the United States, for us to think m much more strategically about our priorities and about increasing investments in science, technology, and innovation in some of these new frontier technologies. At the same time, I think there's also a real risk of conflict or crises that could result in accidental escalations. The purpose of my research is to understand the Chinese military, its strategy, concepts of operations, approaches to war fighting, in a way that I hope will lessen the risks of misunderstanding or misperception that could contribute to inadvertent escalation. But I think it's also important to think about the real risks of a failure of deterrence or a crisis, for instance, over rather expansive territorial claims in the East and South China Seas that could escalate, and to recognize the PLA's increasing capabilities and as a result of rather expansive and ongoing ag agendas for military modernization and to 
recognize as well China's core interests and priorities and uh, ways in which those could also be advanced under peacetime circumstances, uh, military struggle, so to speak, and beyond the realms of how we think about conflict con conventionally, and uh, which poses new new concerns about how to counter what we've seen as often a creeping or salami slicing, as in the South China Sea, or be, uh, activities in cyberspace aimed at disruption or influence on the part of both China and Russia. So I think there's real risks of scenarios of high-end conflict among great powers that have not been seen so far, thankfully, in the century, but also perhaps more likely contingencies of having to manage the rise of a nation or rejuvenation in the PRC's own parlance that is asserting its, its interests within the region and worldwide in ways that are creating friction and also long-term concerns and threats to uh, American and Australian interests. I guess any future war um, and in relation to any strategic competition is always going to involve cyber. So maybe you could talk a little bit to your research on um, uh, cyber and the, and the modernization of the, um, the PLA in terms of its cyber forces um, in general um, over the last, I guess, 10 years or perhaps further back if you think that's important. Sure. So the Chinese military's current strategic guideline concentrates on informatized local wars and the notion of informatization or essentially improving the capacity to leverage information technology or undertake information operations has been a guiding principle for Chinese modernization really since the 90s. And part of that was influenced by the PLA's lessons learned from the Gulf War, even from uh, U.S. operations in Kosovo and Iraq, Afghanistan, and otherwise, and a recognition that advanced technologies were starting to transform the conduct of warfare in ways that created great capabilities, but also vulnerabilities. So initially, the PLA was focused primarily on leveraging cyber as well as electronic warfare to target U.S. battle networks and to try to undermine American ways of warfighting, such as they had observed quite closely as very much a spectator uh, and a force that was fairly backward initially itself at that time. Increasingly, the PLA started to invest in developing and expanding its own capabilities for information operations, that is, for cyber warfare, electronic warfare, and psychological warfare. Initially, through the former General Staff Department, the 3rd Department, 3 PLA, and 4th Department, 4 PLA, which became most infamous for their activities in hacking and industrial espionage. So, for instance, the APT-1 report, Unit 61398, that had quite a track record of hacking all around the world and also of quite a great deal of sloppiness in the process. Uh, that was a unit of 3PLA uh, based in Shanghai, and clearly their OPSEC was subpar in many respects. So, been interesting to see, looking back at that, Looking back at the, that really 2013, 14, 15 time frame, sort of a rather recent pivot of sorts in the pattern of Chinese cyber threat activities, initially from forces that were known essentially for theft, hacking, often against companies, and then increasingly a realization, I think, and perhaps in response to the combination of activities, the APT-1 report that FireEye put out, uh, the indictment, of three PLA hackers and whose faces were plastered on an FBI Most Wanted poster, which I think was probably rather embarrassing for that element of the PLA, that they were caught and so readily exposed. 
And against the backdrop of an anti-corruption campaign in the Chinese military, the, as well as uh, sustained diplomatic pressures from the U.S. trying to curtail these hacking activities, given the costs of those IP theft as it continue to mount. Xi Jinping's pledge in 2015 was a rather carefully worded statement that appeared to imply that China would, at the very least, constrain hacking intended for commercial purposes, while excluding, of course, espionage for strategic or national security motivations. And there was initially a pattern of changes in Chinese cyber threat activities, the number of APT, or Advanced Persistent Threat Groups, uh, being less active, at least temporarily, dating back to, again, after the report, the indictments, and this pledge by Xi Jinping, which has since been violated, at least so it seems. But uh, the real... A pivotal moment when we look at the development of Chinese cyber forces was the establishment of the PLA Strategic Support Force in December 2015, which is really a historic and unexpected turn of events in the course of reforms that have been quite disruptive for the PLA, with a focus on increasing capabilities for joint operations, and in this case, the Strategic Support Force appears to have integrated and consolidated space, cyber, electronic, and psychological warfare capabilities into a single organization under the leadership initially of Commander Gao Jin, who had formerly been the commandant of the PLA's Academy of Military Science and known for his thinking on future warfare and had actually written not long before the reforms about the importance of making, undertaking institutional changes to improve the PLA's capability to fight in, in an era in which informatization was changing the character and conduct of operations. So the Strategic Support Force, again, stood up in late 2015, involves two main departments, the Space Systems Department and the Network Systems Department, the latter of which could be called a de facto cyber command. It's integrated most of the former three PLA and increasingly is building up human capital through the Information Engineering University and the PLASIF as it uh, evolves and develops and continues to be under construction does appear to be, or has been described by Xi Jinping as a growth point for these new type capabilities and I think really will be going forward the tip of the spear for the PLA in any future conflict in which cyber, uh, a cyber attack would be the first blow struck. Right, that, I mean that's a great um, assessment of uh um, precisely the changes we've seen, the movement from uh, an era when there was some capability but some OPSEC mistakes and some very public and embarrassing global um, calling out of activity. And then you're referring to the Obama-Xi Jinping bilateral agreement um, to minimise those sort of incidences. And then I guess a period of um, between 15 and the present, a period of, a modern, of reconstruction and I guess, reorganisation within the PLA, within cyber. Um, and early on there, there seemed to be a, a lesser amount of activity, but I think we're starting to see, especially as the cycle emerges out and PLAs finally reorganise sort of mid-2018, like an enhanced um, level of activity, um, especially through the Belt and Road. I mean, I, I don't know if that's what you've noticed um, in your analysis, um, that since the organisation has occurred, there has been once again an uptick in the level of activity. Is that your experience or? Uh, absolutely. There certainly has been an increase in Chinese cyber threat activities. Most of the incidents that have been attributed in the past couple of years have been more the Ministry of State Security and some of the a APT groups, including some contractors or plausibly deniable companies linked to them. So it does appear that there has been a retasking 
or delegation of responsibilities from PLA to MSS when it comes to either hacking undertaken to advance commercial interests or sort of strategic interests as well. It's the backdrop of One Belt, One Road and sort of growing concerns with uh, understanding the geopolitics of the world. So it does appear that uh, there that there has been a shift in the pattern, though certainly likely PLA units being quite active as well on a number of these fronts. But it was one rather interesting quotation I came across from a a retired military officer from the former General Staff Department sort of indicated that their concern had been that initially the PLA had the rather unfortunate reputation of primarily engaging in theft when actually their objective was for Chinese cyber forces to be a shield for defense and a sword for deterrence or something to that effect. So it does appear that within the PLAS of itself, a major focus has been on the construction of capabilities, perhaps, uh, as well as new directions and doctrine and concepts of operations or even approaches to command and control and coordination, as well as, as, well as supporting training for joint operations. Uh, particularly on the electronic warfare side of things, or creating a complex electromagnetic environment even, in support of training. So it remains, but presumably, as the PLASIF, as its network systems department, works to develop the accesses that would be necessary to undertake cyber operations, it will be active around the world. And that does speak to, I think, a core element of Chinese military thinking on cyber conflict that I think often... There's a tendency, especially in democracies, where we have clear legal and institutional boundaries between peace and war, at least in theory. For in cyberspace, the nature of conflict is much murkier. So, for instance, Chinese textbooks, on, such as the science of military strategy, discuss the notion of military struggle in the cyber domain, which I think is actually, as a, conf- as a concept, is perhaps more apt to describing this uh, the nature of conflict here, that uh, particularly in cyberspace, where it's not simply cyber peace or cyber war, it's uh, continuous ongoing engagements and sort of with an integration of the activities required in peacetime in order to develop accesses to enable future offensive capabilities. And of course, then the problem of distinguishing between if there is an unidentified uh, hacker in your networks, is it there to steal or is it there to kind of prepare an exploit that could be used offensively in the future or perhaps uh, simply a question of timing and opportunity. So, yeah, I think that Chinese military thinking on cyber operations within the framework of their broader notions of information operations, I think, do see this as an integral element of future conflict and one where ongoing activities in peacetime are really the foundation for developing the operational capabilities to perhaps strike first in in a scenario of actual conflict. Okay, so I guess before we move on to um, how, quote, Western democracies might respond uh, to those capabilities, how do you think we might best measure uh, the capabilities that do or have been developed, um, I guess, over the last five years in, um, in, the, in, the, in the PRC? Um, and how do we begin to say whether they're, they're a high level of capability, they have a lot of capacity? Um, how should we begin to measure or begin to define what is a, a capability or a skill in that area, do you think? Hmm. Now that's a great question, and I do think that the quest- the issue of measurement of cyber power, so to speak, is a matter of some ambiguity still, given the lack of transparency of operations in these domains quite often. 
think you can look at it, I suppose, really China's progress since 2013 or so uh, has included everything from efforts to bolster cyber defense, including the implementation of a cybersecurity law and the growing prominence of the Cyberspace Administration of China as a stakeholder in the space, and including trying to better leverage capabilities of cybersecurity companies like Xihu360 in supporting national defense. So there's the question of vulnerability and how China as a nation is trying to both counter the risks and threats of cybercrime, but also sort of increase overall cyber defense, including applying notions of military civil fusion or sort of integrating civilian or commercial capabilities in support of that, of incre- increasing that defense. Then on, there's also the question of China's digital economy and how it, how sort of the increased prominence of technology companies has bolstered economic growth, and that's dimension of power, so to speak. But then, of course, there's also the offensive dimension of this and the strategic support force as it continues to evolve and progress recently with the change of command, for instance. And I think, I suppose there are a couple ways you could look at this. One would be trying to estimate the number of personnel in, for instance, Chinese military cyber forces relative to the U.S. and Australia, and trying to look simply at sort of numbers to get a rough sense of the people and the sort of work workforce and in, informing the development of those capabilities. And I think that does speak to the fact that for all we talk about future conflict in terms of advanced technologies, what you, what is required to actually build that capability and implement is people in organizations who have sort of doctrine and training and experience in undertaking operations. So there are some indicators, for instance, of even the PLA as a whole expanding its recruitment of civilian personnel, which could be relevant as they're looking to leverage those with more talent and technical proficiency, sort of improvements in training and education, including for those who might go on to become cyber operators or commanders in the future, some indications of the extent to which the PLASIF has been supporting joint operations, participating in training exercises, both itself and uh, and in conjunction with other services, and questions of how, given that the strategic support force is directly under the command of the Central Military Commission, how would it actually support theater commands and its an area of conflict? What do the mechanisms look like for that sort of coordination or even information sharing, given that its mission is not only information operations, but also information support, thus the name strategic support, or sort of providing support through intelligence in these domains, space, cyber, and the spectrum, and support of of other services in the theater command. So presumably, as with any bureaucracy or organizational structuring, there's been some degree of friction along the way and or some amount of chaos perhaps even as their attempts to figure out some of these questions starting starting from a lesser level of experience relative to other militaries that have had of long perhaps longer practice and more established precedents uh, for these types of operations and integrating cyber with conventional capabilities but I think that does seem to be progressing and perhaps another metric more technically would be looking at uh, looking at OPSEC, looking at the malware being used by Chinese cyber threat actors, whether they're PLA or MSS, the Ministry of State Security, 
or otherwise, and that is beyond my own level of technical sophistication, so I will defer to experts in bit of cyber threat intelligence and otherwise, but I think insofar as some indications that some of the recent campaigns have been more sophisticated and more scalable, perhaps there's some progress to that front as well, but I think at the end of the day there is an inherent level of uncertainty about what cyber power is and means and does even in a conflict, and I think sometimes a tendency on both sides towards overestimation and even over-exuberance about what uh, cyber weapons, quote-unquote, could do relative to the challenge of actually undertaking cyber operations in complex organizations. So I think a lot of uncertainty is there, and perhaps not a satisfactory answer, but I think a lot of, (coughs) for those of us in the space, a lot of work to be done in trying to make sense of these trends. So I guess what do you think might be some of the vulnerabilities I guess that either either um, the PRC or um, uh, Australia, um, I guess the Five Eyes Alliance might have in responding to any future cyber conflict. Um, are we seeing any pattern by which we can identify what are our most significant vulnerabilities, or if do we have a conception of what quote cyber war quote unquote might be like, and then be able to explore how we might better plan for some of those? contingencies? Uh, do we have a better picture of that? Or as you're suggesting, are we still bureaucracies sort of chaotically trying to work things out in the dark individually? Hmm. Uh, that's a great question and a tricky one because I think there are no shortage of vulnerabilities, unfortunately, ranging from critical infrastructure to our institutions. And I think in some respects, it may be easier to build capabilities than to build defense and resilience, because the endeavor of trying to undertake a whole of nation, so to speak, approach to cyber defense is inherently complicated because it involves multiple stakeholders, including multiple elements of government and the private sector and critical infrastructure operators and otherwise. So the endeavor of trying to raise standards and improve practices for cybersecurity in ways that could mitigate the risk either of data breaches that could be quite damaging or overall or overall vulnerabilities to an actual attack that could be very disruptive, whether in the power grid or financial sector or otherwise. So I think that a lot of the vulnerabilities do come from kind of how do we think about prioritizing or allocating resources between offense and defense. And I'd argue that defense and trying to move towards greater systemic resilience going forward. And for instance, even as we look ahead to next generation technologies and our future critical infrastructure like 5G, trying to ensure that these networks will be more secure by design from the start, instead of having security sometimes be an afterthought after uh, the initial problems and vulnerabilities are already deeply, (laughs) deeply rooted. So I think... Cyber defense, particularly looking at critical infrastructure, given, for instance, that Chinese military strategic writings often talk about, sometimes rather vaguely, attacks on critical infrastructure as one effective approach to uh, achieving an advantage or disrupting an adversary. I think there is a real risk that multiple cyber threat actors, whether states or non-state actors, could, could or likely are preparing to attack American and Australian critical infrastructure. And then there's also the question, as we've seen with recent events, of influence or interference, information operations, in a sense, with the with regard to the psychological warfare element of that in particular. And I think some of the short-term solutions do pertain to 
Sometimes awkwardly choices that technology companies make in terms of how they manage their platforms. When you, have pla when you have Twitter and Facebook, for instance, in a position where they are arbitrating or deciding what stays up and what goes down, that's uh, quite <laughs> tricky all in all and definitely does reflect another new element of what competition and confrontation do look like in the world today and hopefully ways to sort of for companies to improve coordination with governments and while well, building upon lessons learned to how they how they handle cases when their platforms are being exploited by bots and trolls and all sorts of bad actors across the board. And I think in, in particular what concerns me is we've already seen shallow fakes or sort of in imagery that's uh, sometimes leveraging basic AI to be spoofed in ways that aren't entirely convincing, but enough to create an impression, or even deep fakes that are much more realistic and hard to differentiate from actual imagery of, for instance, a prominent politician doing or saying something that they have not said or done. And I think as we look to, for instance, in the United States today, looking towards the 2020 elections and some of the activities that are already underway, and likely going to be ramping up in the next couple months, the next couple years. I think there will be some very real threats against which I hope there'll be an urgent response given the gravity of this. And we've already seen the damage in 2016 of even efforts that are not terribly sophisticated. So I do worry sometimes that in the next couple of years, we'll look back at the 2016 elections and think, oh, wasn't that quaint? Or the sort of Russian propaganda was so unsophisticated, and yet it still worked. People still were convinced and persuaded by it. And I think that does speak to deeper challenges in human psychology and our interactions with content and social media. And I think the long-term solutions do have to come down to education and trying to inform students inform the general public about how to sort of evaluate content online in a manner that's rigorous and balanced. And I think it also does speak to trust in institutions and in government and sort of hopefully having have, having and earning the credibility to have their message be believed among their publics and worldwide at a time when these tools and techniques for faking information, uh, including generative adversarial networks and otherwise. And I think all of this will only get worse as advances in AI continue. And it is scary, but I think with, with technical problems come technical solutions, so ways to identify, for instance, when content has been spoofed or to verify authenticity, perhaps. I think there are I think there can be a tendency to be fatalistic, but I think there also are options if there's enough foresight and early action for mitigation. So what are the threats that you, you think might be the sophisticated threats we might encounter, say, for 2020? Um, and you mentioned deep and shallow fakes, um, adversarial generative networks, so AI, um, sort of AI versus AI. Um, are they the sort of things that you would think would be likely sophisticated threats we might encounter you're talking about a new level of you inauthenticity in a sense um, so do you think do you want to speak to some of those threats that you think we might encounter as early as 2020 i think in some cases we're already encountering that today in fact just today i believe a video of mark zuckerberg was posted that was a faked uh, footage not entirely convincingly but him talking about the power of facebook and sort of in a rather ominous manner and facebook had previously not long ago decided when a video of nancy pelosi that was spoofed to make her appear slurred or incoherent 
that they would leave that up, but uh, sort of downgrade it in their algorithm. It remains to be seen whether Mark Zuckerberg saying essentially implying that Facebook is an evil empire with the capacity to control all of our lives, whether that footage will be left up or taken down. But I think it does speak to, again, that those on the frontiers of this are often technology companies. And for Eve recently as well, looking to Twitter on the anniversary and the anniversary of Tiananmen, the accounts of a number of Chinese activists and Chinese language uh, tw- Twitterers, so to speak, were deactivated without explanation. And I think there were claims from Twitter it was a technical glitch or it was sort of they that it was not at all related to the timing, which I think was not taken very seriously as an answer. And I think there appear to have been cases where, for instance, bots, presumably acting on behalf of Beijing, have reported as false or fraudulent accounts of activists who they are concerned or feel threatened by and also increased activity by both Chinese official Chinese propaganda as well as often rather clumsy bots and fake accounts on Twitter. I think ironic that, uh, and given that Twitter is blocked in China in many cases and that the content that the U.S. and Australian governments might put place on Weibo and otherwise are quite quickly censored, that... Uh, Xinhua, even the editor of Global Times, uh, are quite active on Twitter and using Twitter quite extensively in some cases. Even Huawei has been, some of its campaigns and Huawei facts have been all over Twitter as well. (laughs) A lot of promoted content there. So I think there is an interesting asymmetry where authoritarian governments have a capacity to control what the information within their borders or within what... what, uh, China would call the realm of their cyber sovereignty, so to speak, whereas democracies, by definition, we have have believed in free flows of information and preferred much greater openness. And I think we're seeing that openness being exploited. And I worry sometimes that if if our response is to enact our own measures of cyber sovereignty and try to implement our own approaches to restrict content, there are risks that we will end up in the outcome that China and Russia actually want, which is our implicit acknowledgement of their framework of information security and the acknowledgement that certain content should be controlled, which then gets down to a political calculation of what information is a threat and who has has the authority to decide. So I worry that even the direction things are taking may be problematic and troubling for those of us who believe in freedom of expression on the internet. And I hope that there will be ways to make sure that responses are careful and calibrated and sort of proportionate and with keeping sort of norms and values in mind along the way. And again, I think things are going to be interesting in the next couple of years. And I think a lot of this is already already happening. And I think when we think about sort of early warning of new capabilities, going forward, can look to what the Chinese government is doing domestically. So for instance, the fact that there are extensive efforts to leverage big data for monitoring of public opinion online, with the aim of having early warning of potential unrest and even of management of public opinion in ways that are beneficial to the regime, that arguably is a capability to understand and manipulate public opinion that could be, and perhaps already is being applied to those this Chinese Communist Party calls overseas Chinese via via the platforms that the Chinese technology companies are promoting that have become more global. WeChat, for instance, prominently among them and otherwise. And I think also reasons to watch very closely, for instance, what is happening in Taiwan 
with the elections there last fall and some of the allegations that the Taiwanese social media e- ecosystem was exploited or manipulated with false information targeting certain candidates. And I think if we're looking for early warning of what could be targeting the U.S. and Australia in the future, looking to what the CCP is doing domestically and what they're doing in targeting overseas Chinese, as the CCP calls them, and targeting Taiwan, activists in Hong Kong and otherwise, I think that it, that will give us a sense of, sort of tactics that are being developed and experimented with uh, in the interest of promoting national security from the from Beijing's perspective, but that also as the realm of Chinese interests and concerns is global in scope and scale, I think the sort of targeting and manipulation may may extend increasingly beyond China's sovereign borders in ways that do, do start to pose real risks and concerns. Again, there's been some debate in the U.S. about whether about Chinese interference, which often has taken the form of offline efforts, United Front work in particular, trying to co-opt elites, sometimes through behavior that is rather corrupt. And I know there's been quite a debate on these issues in Australia as well, within the U.S. right now. uh, Some indications even members of the current administration may have rather problematic uh, relationships with elements of the Chinese government that do raise some very real and urgent questions. I hope that... As democracies look to respond to this, there are ways both to sort of move towards exposing and imposing greater transparency ac- upon these activities, again, both online and offline attempts at influence, while also re- sort of recognizing that improving our practices to clean up politics in general is another general purpose solution that uh, ha- lobbying or rather sketchy sources of funding generally and alternative incomes for those in and around the political ecosystem. Those are factors that can enable these sorts of tactics by the CCP. And so I think there are a lot of of ways to respond that both focus on the way in which the CCP is attempting to undertake influence and propaganda, but also sort of recognizing ways to strengthen our institutions first and foremost and really recognize that uh, to some degree there is an ideological dimension to this competition. And although it is still uh, heatedly debated whether China is actively promoting the China model or Chinese wisdom, so to speak, I think there are indications that there are attempts to burnish and promulgate that that model, particularly as it pertains to issues like internet management and governance, for instance. And I think the best way for democracies to uh, create our own uh, effective and united response involves really thinking about how we prove the superiority of our own systems and invest in reinvigorating our institutions going forward. Right, so you're talking there to a, a complex asymmetry, which is also kind of potential catch-22 for the West in the sense of that um, the strength is an open um, free market democratic system, but which leads to some dependence on free market um corporations or, or global media companies in, in some sense, um, which I guess, so in space, for example, um, is the comparative advantage of the quote West or the Five Eyes actually enabling um, uh, companies to operate in a, in a semi-military space, whereas the um, CCP and the PRC is largely dependent upon a, an alternative, a very radically different structure, like a, an authoritarian hierarchical um a model. I guess one thing that's become emblematic um, of this particular challenge is, of course, 5G. So 
as listeners will be aware, in Australia, um, 5G um, was rapidly banned, um, largely as a result of some um, wargaming at ASD to identify what might occur in the cyberstorm events we were talking about about earlier. And I guess the United States has responded as well recently. We've seen the UK Parliamentary Committee discussing it just in the last few days. Um, what do, I mean, 5G is a, a capability which um, societies need to manage in any case in terms of how we manage a vulnerability like or a, an opportunity like 5G. Um, I, I wonder if you'd be able to speak to, say, um, the way in which um, so the United States has produced the executive order um, and then identified sort of a blacklist essentially of adversarial companies that might be counter to the, the interests of the United States. Um, do you think that's the most effective way to manage, the, I guess, the broader 5G challenge or do you think there's a more complex way that you, we might be able to explore that particular challenge? Sure. So when I was first in Australia last spring, the uh, debate on Huawei was in full swing. And certainly, I'm tired of talking about Huawei insofar as that company has taken up so much of the oxygen in the conversation on 5G. And not without reason, because when you look at Huawei and its history and its track record, there are very real reasons for concern. And the debate at times has become rather political to a degree that is unfortunate or has become sort of derailed by the fact that Huawei's managed to muddy the waters with their own counter-narrative and their own marketing in a sense. But I think, yeah, I think Australia did make the right call in deciding to exclude Huawei from Australian critical infrastructure, I would say. And I think that does speak to the issues you mentioned of sort of thinking through the worst case scenarios that could occur if you have a nation that is a competitor or at worst potential adversary with that access to your critical infrastructure. Again, because that is what 5G will be. It's not simply a new generation of telecommunications. It could really transform our economies and societies in ways that are quite exciting, but also do create a level of intensity for risks that goes beyond what we've seen today. If you think about future smart cities or applications from autonomous vehicles to healthcare to uh, someone turning off, turning off the lights in Canberra, I think there are real reasons for concern there. But I think, I think it's time for the conversation to move forward because I think the <laughs> security concerns are well established, but I think but, go, but it, it, it's also necessary, I think, to think positively and proactively about what a secure future for 5G looks like. And again, Huawei may continue to be part of the global technological ecosystem, and as a company, they have certain strengths. But I think some of their claims that without Huawei, there is no 5G, that Huawei is the absolute or undisputed leader in 5G, do ring false once you actually look a little bit more closely and think more rigorously about what 5G is and could be going forward. So there's a lot of talk about the race for 5G. I see it as more of a marathon and one where we're really just at the start. And Huawei may have a lead for the time being, including and in particular because they have been able to capture a rather dominant proportion of the market in the telecommunications industry which has been directly a result of their being subsidized and supported by the Chinese government. 
in a way that enables them to undercut their competitors in terms of price. And of course, for economic reasons, many countries may find that that appealing and for good reason, because it's cheap, it's uh, reasonably high quality all in all. So where's the catch? Well, I think there very well could turn out to be a catch when given, again, Huawei's relatively lackluster track record on security, as the UK's report on the topic had demonstrated a couple weeks or months now ago. And I think there's also reasons to question whether Huawei truly is as dominant as they claim to be and really to look for other options through which countries may also achieve 5G going forward. Again, despite all the talk of a race, there may be some first mover advantages, but it's 5G is still taking shape, and the research and development and standardization that are still very much ongoing today will determine what it looks like over 5, 10, and 15 years down the road. So Huawei winning is not inevitable, and there's still options for other companies to leverage their own strengths and advantages, and for the U.S. and Australia and other like-minded countries to look for ways to have our own our own alternatives to 5G, leveraging companies that are perhaps more trusted while also keeping security in mind and recognizing that uh, excluding Huawei in the base of, on the basis of security concerns does not mean you have the secure 5G. It's just the start of the conversation. You still need to think about security for all vendors, all carriers, through the whole life cycle of the system and its management and operation. So I think the conversation about Huawei has been rather circular over the past couple years, but the conversation about 5G security and about trying to pursue innovation in 5G is really just getting started. And I think there, I think it's going to be imperative going forward to really invest in, in research and development and some of the core and foundational technologies that will shape what 5G becomes in the future. Again, some talk of 6G lately, and uh, certainly beyond where 5G is today, later iterations of this generation or the next generation, that is still very much an open race. So I hope that the conversation on 5G can continue to move forward and evolve and really start to concentrate on providing positive alternatives to Huawei, including countering some of Huawei's rather problematic uh, vote for 5G, vote for us uh, messaging in Europe and otherwise, because I think... Yeah, they, having the conversation be too much about them is actually great marketing for the company, and I think it does result in an overlooking of the fact that many other companies in the space, Nokia, Ericsson, Samsung, Samsung, Qualcomm, and perhaps some startups out there that could have a chance to really pioneer new directions in 5G if, if uh, they were able to get the investment they need. Uh, so definitely other, other players, other alternatives going forward, and I hope, uh, hope there's still ways to change the game. So I guess uh, in consideration of that, where should we move that conversation into the future? I mean, we spoke, we focused a lot on 5G, we focused a lot on AI. Um, I mean, what should be, where should our conversation now be for the future? I mean, you have a, the official title as one of the few people who has the official title as mad scientist. So where do you think as a, as a mad scientist, we should really be, should it even be about technology? Should it be about something else? Like, what do you think we should be talking about? So I suppose it's more accurate to say I'm a mad analyst than a mad scientist, perhaps, though a little bit mad either way or regardless, especially when I am as jet lagged as I am right now. But I guess I would say 
I think there are reasons to be excited and enthusiastic about a range of technologies that are emerging today, the convergences among them, so biotechnology, for instance, including how machine learning as applied to genomic information could result in unique insights in precision medicine, even perhaps human enhancement, for better and worse. Uh, all of that is variously exciting and or deeply concerning, depending on how you look at it and which preferred science fiction narratives uh, shape your views of the future, I suppose. And I also find quantum information science absolutely fascinating. I would not claim to understand quantum physics, but I've been lucky to spend a lot of time talking to researchers in the field who are very patient with my many, many questions. And I think there are quite exciting developments in quantum cryptography, which could be not quite unhackable, but at least more secure and uh, provably secure in some ways, plus quantum computing, which could be incredibly powerful, uh, even exponentially in some cases so, relative to classical computers. And that also is still at a fairly nascent stage, but progressing very rapidly. And I think when you think about what does it look like when you combine the power of quantum computing with um, machine learning, mass amounts of data, then apply, use that in fields like biology, who knows where things will go or what will happen. But I think... I think regardless, the uncertainty for these te about these technologies is, is inevitable. I don't claim to know what the future of war or the future of competition looks like, and I'm skeptical of anyone who thinks they have it all figured out. But I think regardless, the United States and Australia can think about how we invest in science going forward, providing support and funding for basic research, as well as I think a core priority has to be education, both STEM education as well as some of the interdisciplinary education will be required to try to make sense of this new world we are entering and the pace of progress and disruption I think will take a range of different types of expertise and I think really I, I've been saying lately that I, the Chinese government is despite all of the limitations of their sometimes more state-driven approach to technology is is actually pursuing some directions that I wish uh, democracies were more avidly pursuing. So for instance, focusing on talent training, recruitment of scientists, uh, investing much more heavily in research, and I think these are things that the U.S. and Australia have done and could do much more actively, and those are directions we should be pursuing regardless of what China is doing and regardless of the state of the world. But I think some of these measures do become much more urgent when we are in a very competitive geopolitical environment and there are great, great benefits, but also great dangers that come with these technologies. So I think in the process, trying to contest leadership in some of these new frontiers of science and technology while also keeping our values and ethics in mind from the start. And I think there are real reasons for concern about where, where, where these fields are going and questions of how to ensure that these developments occur in ways that do strengthen and bolster our societies and our democracies. But we do, we do have agency. We do have choices we can make that will shape how, the, how all of this plays out. And I hope we can sort of think, think deeply, try to think ahead, and try to make the right choices. And again, I think some of the, ba some of the basic policy directions may be some of the most important here, science, education, and really trying to reinvigorate our democracies and also concentrate concentrating questions of equality of opportunity as well, because I think there's a lot, a lot of work to be done, and I 
think we can always look to improve ourselves and look for ways the technologies can be empowering. Great. Well, thank you very much, Elsa. And, and let's hope into the future that someone will develop a cure for jet lag. Thanks very much. You've done great today. Thank you. Thank you. That's this week's episode of Password123. Don't forget to join me next fortnight for another episode. And for more information, just Google UNSW Canberra Cyber. I'm Tom Sear. Thanks for listening.